Okay, a bit of a review of where we've come so far in the book of Judges. Um, Chapters 1 through chapter 3 and verse 6 contain two summaries. First, uh, Judges 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 5, which we've completed last week, is the progress of the conquest of the land. Uh, It's a summary of the um, uh, land uh, being taken over by the Israelites, conquering uh, various places uh, within the promised land. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, where we'll start today, going through chapter 3, verse 6, is a summary of the history about to unfold uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, it recaps 400 years of, of victories and uh, trials by the uh, Israelis. And so the first three chapters or so um, are two summaries, and we've covered the first summary, and we're going to open up uh, the second summary, that of the history. So it's a, it's a re- brief um, summation of of those 400 years. So last week we ended the study with uh, God's evaluation of uh, the people of Israel. Uh, How well did they keep his command? Um, We're working off of the pattern where God gives a promise or a command. Man responds, either he obeys or he disobeys. And then God evaluates, either he provides blessings or judgment. And we saw last week at the end of the lesson that the incarnate Jesus Christ uh, was there to provide uh, judgment for the lack of obedience and the lack of faith uh, on behalf of these people. He charges them with spiritual rebellion against God's commands. And he asks them that question, a self-examination. What have you done? What have you done? Now, I find the Holy Scriptures to be very practical. Um, So much of the Scripture is meant for us to internalize and to make personal applications. The question could have been, what have I done? For instance, we all have unconquered Canaanites in our hearts, in our minds. We fight them constantly in our lives. We have giants which we are still fighting. Not to make it personal, but can you think of some of these things that people are still struggling with in their lives today as Christians, as people of God. What are some of the things that our brothers and sisters are struggling with? Unresolved Canaanites in our lives. Yeah. Fear and anxiety. Yeah. How often in the New Testament we're commanded, do not fear. But yet, it's, it's what we do. Worry and doubt. Worry and doubt. 
And it wasn't that part of the problem we saw with the uh, people of Israel. <coughs> Iron chariots. And I don't think we can deal with that. There was some doubt. Well, God had brought them that far, but they did not have the faith to believe that he could see them all the way through. Anything? Pardon me? Oh, yeah, covetousness. We're all dealing with that. You know? It doesn't have to be physical things. It can be other things that we covet. Pride. The, the grandfather of all sin, basically. Sure. Remember the Lord's Day and keep it holy. These are all things that we struggle with. And I have a list here, but you guys had a better list, so I'm not going to bother telling you mine. <clears throat> so we sin against our holy God when we compromise with the world. When we fail to keep his statutes and commands, we're setting ourselves up for his judgment. He's asking us, what have you done? This opening section is a reminder to us that we became, if we become too friendly with the evil spiritual culture that we live in and we compromise on God's commands, those things that we thought we had conquered may in turn conquer us. Sometimes when Christians compromise God's clear instructions, Pastor Albert Moeller calls it evangelical relativism. As you know, relativism is a philosophy that abounds in our society today. It's a belief in that the concepts such as right and wrong and good and bad and uh, truth and falsehood uh, are, absolute, are not absolute, but they change with the situation to situation from person to person. Moeller explained <coughs> evangelical relativism is knowing what God's statutes are and then attempting to live by them until those statutes or commands hit close to home. If you have a same-sex marriage or a transgender individual as part of your immediate family, then often evangelical relativism sets in. We do not say anything, or we may not defend God's truth on the subject. We may simply sit back and do nothing. And then God allows those consequences to play out in our lives, in our families, as a form of judgment. He places these as thorns in our side. Now, history has shown us that oftentimes the conquerors are overcome by those who they have conquered. Greece had conquered Rome, and now then Rome in turn conquers Greece. The Goths conquered Rome. The Normans reconquered England. So if you think about it, Israel was in some respects conquered by the Canaanites. God's judgment was in effect to let the people have what they wanted. The Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites and allowed them to live among them. 
So in effect, God's judgment on his people was to let them have what they wanted and to watch and see what happens. God says, you didn't tear down their pagan altars. Watch and see what happens when their foreign gods become part of your culture and society. God punishes our compromises with our spiritual enemies by letting the effects of that compromise work itself out, having natural consequences. And that can either be on an individual basis, it can be as a church, and it can be as a nation as well. Well, this concluded the first section of the summary of the conquest, Judges 1 through 2, verses 1 through 5. Now we're going to take a look at Judges 2, 6 through 10, but don't turn there yet. This uh, will give us the second half of the introduction that I mentioned, that of the history of the nation that's to follow after Joshua's death. Again, let me make it clear that I'm not a Bible scholar. I must depend greatly on works of people that have gone before me. Like I say, I climb up on the backs of giants. And so um, I rely on people with uh, greater knowledge and insight than I have. So a lot of this material have come from people like James Jordan, Kenneth Way, Alexander McLaren, and with the help of the website uh, studylight.org, these are some of the people that I consulted in putting this, these lessons together, just to make that clear. So again, we're, we're, we're going to look at the pattern, um, God's promise and command, man's response, and God's evaluation. In this passage that we're about to look at, the basic failure of the Israelites uh, set forth here is that they did not pass on their Uh, to their children a sense of loyalty to the Lord. Since this was the fundamental command and promise they violated, we're going to take a look at that first, and then we'll look at... Through nine, and then we're going to look at uh, verses 20 through 25, same chapter. Okay, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk to them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When we break down this passage, it shows us that uh, in verse 4 that uh, God first identifies himself as the only uh, God, the only true God, the only true living God. He is Yahweh, the covenant king of Israel. Then in verse 5, the people are commanded to cling to God with all their being, practicing his presence moment by moment and day by day. Then in verse 6, God's law is to be written on the hearts by their meditating on it constantly. Now just a little side note there. The, the writing of the law on the heart is not a magical thing that happens once upon salvation but it's something that increases in depth and in breadth and, and it becomes greater and greater the more you study God's law and study who God is. Moreover, note that the law was written on the heart. It's not just a new covenant uh, blessing. Jeremiah 31:33 says, This is the... <coughs> This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, or in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So we should say that uh, it, what was fully uh, definitively done in the new covenant was also conditionally and partially done in the old covenant. But what is important for us as we study the book of Judges appears in verse 7. God tells the people to teach the law to their children. And he do this by constantly bringing it up before them, constantly re, uh, repetition. Again, that was basic uh, way of passing on uh, knowledge and information in that day and age. In this way, the law would come to be written on the hearts of the children. And since the law is a record of the holy character of God, the holy attributes of God, teaching the law is the same as teaching about God. And so <clears throat> they were instructed to do this. It was God <clears throat> that was to be known by all people and all children. And so the parents were responsible for that instruction. Now it wasn't designed to be a pharisaical school of just reading the law on basis of legalism, but it was designed to have the kids be submitted to a holy God, to know a personal king and to know a loving father. That was the purpose and desire for this instruction. 
The children were to be taught that whatever is done by them physically, whatever is done through their thought and their mind, is to be governed by the word of God. And that's in verse 8. Not only is this designed for teaching personal morality, it's written on their heart, but it was also to be written on the doorposts, which symbolizes family morality. And it was written on the gates of the city, which was to be uh, a symbol that God should govern uh, the laws of the community. It should be the basis of the laws of, of, of the towns and cities, political uh, life. Moving down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the testimonies and the statutes and the judgment mean which the Lord commanded you? And you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all of his household. And he brought us from, out from therein in order to bring us to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers, so that the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, and to our good always, and to our survival, and even today. And it will be righteousness for us if we guard observing all the commandments before the Lord our God, just as he has commanded us. So again, it is re-emphasized here in, the, in these passages that uh, how we should teach the children, verse 20. At this point, however, the subject matter is not so much the content of the law itself or the character of God, but rather the reason why the law was given, to remember the actions that God had performed in history for his people. So part one of God's mighty acts is that he brought us out of Egypt. The children were especially to be taught about God's mighty signs and wonders so that they will know him to be a God of almighty power so that they will not fear him out of uh, trepidation but to be fearful of him and be in awe of him, of his great power. So there's no reason to be afraid of iron chariots. The second part, phase two of God's mighty acts, he brought us into the promised land and gave us his law as a rule of life, something that is standard to live by while we're in this land that he has given us. So the children must understand that deliverance from Egypt was not done by their own law-keeping, not by their own efforts, but by God's powerful action on their behalf. 
The law is given for our own good and for our survival, in verses 21 through 24. The language here is interesting. I emphasized the word guard when I read that passage. Adam was told to guard the garden in Genesis 2.15. The word guard and keep can be interchangeable here. But Adam failed to do so, and he was cast out, and uh, new guardians were appointed in Genesis 3.24. So he was commanded to guard, and he didn't do it. Uh, He was cast out. So the implication here is that the people were given a kind of a guard, even type garden in Canaan. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were told to guard it or keep it. And if they didn't, the consequences would be they would be removed just like Adam was out of the garden. So the children must know two things, the Lord and what the Lord has done. So did the people of Israel guard the promised land? Did they keep it? No. And what happened? Well, they were sent into exile. They were removed from it. So if the children know these things and they will get to stay in the new garden, if they forget them, they eventually will be cast out uh, just like Adam was. So that was the command. That was the promise. If you do these things, then you will receive a blessing. If you don't do these things, then there will be judgment. So turn now back to Judges chapter 2 and verse 6. And we'll begin the second summary here of the history of of the Israelite people. Judges 2 verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people and the sons of Israel uh, went each to their inheritance to possess the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of uh, Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord and which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the, son, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. And they buried him in a territory of his inheritance, in Timonath Hears, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gahash. Joshua's dismissal of the people was recorded in Joshua 24. And the people went out to their inheritance and to possess the land. And this may be part of the reason why the land was not totally clear to the Canaanites. Uh, Israel just settled down too soon to enjoy the victory. They hadn't 
completely done what they were told to do? How often, you, if you and I, it's a temptation to settle down before the fight is completely finished? The land was essentially but not thoroughly conquered. And those people who had seen God's miraculous works that brought them out of Egypt, who saw how they were able to conquer uh, and win many battles, uh, they were faithful to the covenant. In essence, they didn't do everything they were told to do, but they were faithful up, uh, up to a point. We have seen that they were not thoroughly uh, faithful in conquering the land. And we shall see in verse 10 that they were not thoroughly faithful in transmitting the faith to their children. But they were essentially faithful. And God was gracious up to a point. Verse 10. In all the generations, all were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So those people that had experienced God's blessing who came out of Egypt, they were Caleb and, and Joshua, but <clears throat> their generation that uh, also died off, and those people failed to teach their kids. The kids or the children grew up ignorant of the two things specifically said in Deuteronomy 6. Teach about God and teach about what he did for us. They did not know the Lord. They did not know his works on behalf of Israel. So what does this mean? Well, in the first place, it means that the older generation was too busy doing what they were supposed to do they misinterpreted God's priorities. As a result, their children were not taught about God. Scripture makes it plain that there was no more important task to a man and woman as than teaching his or her children about the Lord. The very last verses of the Old Testament in the book of Micah tell us that the whole purpose of the Messiah's work can be summed up by restoring the family's life under God. See, I will send the prophet Elijah before you, that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or, I, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The older generation worked hard to occupy the land. They conquered some of it. But of all their labors came to naught because they did not teach their kids about God. And eventually the land was conquered by their enemies. And they were sent into exile. This is a sad story. It uh, happens over and over in the book of Judges. Israel's national disasters 
We're often a direct result of the family disasters, the destruction of the family, the breakdown of the family. Parents who did not understand what God had instructed them to do. So are we seeing history repeat itself in our culture? Adam, can you move that? Move that? And bring me my mouse up here. And there's a button there that says focus. Focus that in here. This is a chart on church attendance by generations from 2003 to 2020. <clears throat> the top line, the blue line, is what we refer to as the greatest generation, those who were around during World War II. But as <clears throat> they tended to die off, so did their church attendance drop. The next one is the baby boomers. It's a lot of people in here. We didn't attend church as much as our parents did, and it tends to drop off. The next generation, Generation X, it is less than... So again, we see parents not teaching their kids, and as a result, fewer and fewer are following after God. And then we had this Generation Z. And there's an, the newest generation isn't listed here. Um, they said the sample wasn't great enough at, at this point in time to, to record it. But that bottom generation that's not recorded has more people declaring to be atheists than any of the other groups. Rejecting, not knowing God. <clears throat> and we can see the work of the parents uh, was very typical of what happened here in the days of Israel. So <clears throat> when the parents failed to teach the children about God, the next generation turned out in days of Israel to seek after Baal and Asheroth. Much of the pagan worship with its perversions of drawing the young people in today. <clears throat> I mentioned the fact that when we started this study that a lot of our culture today is just mimicking the things that were going on during the Baal worship. The perversions, the uh, baby sacrifices, we see that re reoccurring even today. Interesting statistic I ran across that said there are more witches in our country today than our members of the United Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> so busy, busy Christians and their rebellious, <coughs> rebellious children are a story that is very common to all the ages of the church. 
And it is this now why we see so many preacher's kids and missionary kids that may be turning away from the faith. However, we got two examples here of pastor's kids that seem to have turned out pretty well. <laughs> and that were, we counted a joy to have them among us. But on the other hand, my best friend growing up was a preacher's kid. And uh, his father was a preacher for 20 years, and then he got saved. And by that time, none of the kids were willing to follow in the faith. Sometimes it's simply the result of uh, egotism by the parents. Um, I'm important, my work is important, and I don't have time for my kids. Parents with this attitude will pay dearly down the line. Now, I'm not saying all the kids turn out bad because of uh, parental issues. Um, a lot of times there are Christian parents who try as hard as they can to provide a Christian atmosphere and to teach their kids but uh, God hasn't drawn them uh, into his kingdom as of yet. So we see some rebellion among them. The children did not understand the reality of the war between God's people and God's enemies. God's mighty work of war in the past, had they been taught properly, would have taught them how to... Uh, 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 what a desperate situation that uh, they were really in. They would have known that God means business and that he kills his enemies. And they would have known that the Canaanites and the other nations around them hated them and that peace with them was impossible. And they would have known the viciousness of Pharaoh and the Amalekites and they would have remembered that Ammon and Moab refused to give them food. And they would have been on their guard against the enemy. But they weren't taught those things. And unfortunately, a lot of our kids today are not being warned against the enemy. Spiritual warfare that we're facing. Also knowing that God had killed an entire generation of their forefathers in the wilderness, they would have been on their guard to stay close to the Lord. It was therefore easy to compromise and to play around with Baal and Asheroth. God seemed to be so far away and his mighty works were almost mythical compared with the sophisticated new views offered all around them. So at this point, we must ask a further question, the answer to which is very important as we understand the theology and the biblical truths of the book of Judges. If the children grow up immoral, what does that say about the relationships between the father and the mother? <laughs> it has been my experience as a teacher that not always but oftentimes a poor marriage may lead to difficult children. So to understand the biblical position on this, we, we go back to the first marriage, Adam and Eve. 
Adam had three duties that he was to perform for Eve. He was to guard her, he was to give her food, and he was to instruct her. And we see him failing in all three areas. He stands by and lets her do all the talking with the serpent, Genesis 3.6. He says he, he was with her, but she was doing the talking. He takes food from her hand, and he does not protect her. Now in Christ, we see the reverse happening. He protects his bride. To paraphrase, I will not lose any of the ones that my father has given to me. He gives food to the bride from the tree of life in the book of Revelation. He instructs the bride through his holy word and the elders that he had been called into his service. These are the duties, the tasks that are the duties of every man to his wife. Now in Israel, the Levites were called to stand in as priests for the Lord. In other words, they were to represent the heavenly bridegroom to his bride. Leviticus 10.10 and 11 says that the priests were supposed to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean, which is their guarding or protecting work. They were to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses, which was their instructing work. And they also managed the sacrifices, which was their feeding work. So similarly, uh, the lips of uh, a priest, according to uh, Malachi 2.7, the lips of the priest should preserve and guard knowledge for men, should seek the law from his mouth, and he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Malachi goes on to condemn the Levites uh, being faithless to their wives which is a sign that they were also faithless to their obligations to the people of Israel. The Levites had been given the special privilege of being the husband of Israel. So what we find in Judges, especially in the end of the book, is the failure of the Levites to act as a proper husband to Israel. They failed to teach and thus failed to guard and keep as they should have. As a result, they left the bride of the Lord exposed to danger, just like we see the parents who did not teach their kids, exposing them to danger. We are told by the New Testament that Eve was deceived by Adam, or was deceived, but it was Adam who was the one primarily guilty of the fall of man. Thus, it's true that the wife is responsible for her sinful choices. The wife is responsible for her sinful actions. But some blame for these choices and actions are traced back to the husband. 
The spiritual harlotry of Israel, the bride, was due in a large part to the failure of the Levites. He was representing the groom, and he was to guard her by means of sound instruction, but he failed to do that. Because the true husband, the Lord, was not visible and was soon forgotten because the Levites did not instruct them, the result was their lonely bride went sinfully searching for an adulterous substitute. And that she found in, in the worship of Baal and other false gods. And the, <clears throat> as wicked as her actions were, and as responsible as they were, we see that the primary blame is traced back to the Levites. The word Baal means Lord or husband. And we see here the nation Israel seeking out another husband. So the sin of Israel <coughs> is consi <coughs> consisted in substituting the false marriage of Baal for the true marriage of the Lord with his people. And we'll see that expanded upon in lessons to come. Uh, any thoughts or input or ideas about the lesson? Says something about what we're roles are husband and wives and as parents. And we're to instruct our children and most of us here, if we have grandchildren, we should do the same with them. Okay. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Brother Wade, would you close in prayer, please? There's still about two minutes downstairs yet, so hold off before we run down there. <clears throat>